Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I'm going to do something a little different. We're coming up on two years of Story Untold in just a few weeks, and I wanted to take this chance to look back at some of the best parts of conversations thus far, get you up to speed on things you might have missed or things worth giving some extra thought. It's not going to be an every week kind of thing. There are still new interviews on the way, but this week and every so often I'll bring you the best of. And I figured I'd start this off with travel. This week I want to take you through a few conversations from the question of whether we're changing the places we love, the idea of treating travel like a percentage game, and that's a really fascinating one, a trip on the death train in Myanmar, and lessons learned from seeing the world by motorcycle. We'll start with Chris Burkhardt, episode 49. Chris is a world-renowned photographer, director from Pismo Beach, California. You might have seen his movie Under an Arctic Sky on Netflix, and if not, you've probably seen his photos on Instagram. He's been a TED speaker and published eight books and made a living through sharing pictures of the world. What I enjoy most about this conversation is hearing his thoughts on getting people to care about the places we see and how photography can play a part in that. Here's Chris Burkhardt. Does it get old to you, just being in new places constantly or, or being in transit all the time? Um, you know what? It, I, I think the reality, like with anything, is it all depends on what you're doing and where you're going. Hmm. You know, and, and ultimately, like, are you inspired by by what you're doing? You know, is is what you're photographing, is the story that you're telling, maybe more importantly, is that interesting to you? You know, and so I um I guess I always try to challenge people to think about, you know, this is this is really the thing that gets me the most willing to to really submit every part of myself to the job is am I inspired? Am I excited about what I'm doing? Am I excited about what I'm seeing? Like and that's that's I think the approach that you have to take from away from it, you know, is is looking at what you're doing and asking yourself, is this something where I'm going to be willing to just give every part of myself? Mm. Um, because I think that's what this job, that's what this job asks of you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether whether you want it to or not, this job asks asks a lot of you, and at times, it's maybe easier to accept, and at other times, it's it's not so. Yeah. So to be inspired is your benchmark rather than to say, is this location going to sell me this many prints or, or get me this much exposure? It's, it's something else. Right. Well, I mean, if, if that was the case, I'd just be going back to the same five or six places. You know, it wouldn't yeah. it wouldn't be there wouldn't be anything special or unique about it. And that's just the truth. Of the matter is like I I aim to like go to locations that I'm uh, that inspire me, that make me excited, make me want to share a story. And I think, like you said, when you when you get into those situations, you realize that that's, I think, where the best version of yourself is going to come about. Hmm. You know, I watched the film that you did, Under an Arctic Sky, and had a good laugh at just the brutal snowstorm that you guys are driving through in Iceland to try and capture those swells and to be the first people to surf there. What is the longest that you've waited or the most effort that you've gone through for a single shot or a single you know, sequence of shots? Okay. Well, sometimes it's like you get the moment, but you want to perfect it. And so you end up coming back mm. year after year after year after year. And I would say that I don't really, I can't really think of a time where it's like, you know, with Under Arctic Sky, it was kind of like, you know, we had an idea and it took us like 22 days in total to really see the full thing realized. Right. You know, 
and actually in order to get the one shot, it was kind of like it took one night, you know, we just got we got lucky that one night it wasn't. But that's the thing is like we didn't really have a shot in mind particularly, mm-hmm. you know. We, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were just hoping that it would all come to life and we got what we got and it was amazing, but it wasn't like, this is the shot guys. Right. I'm going to draw it out and map it out for you, you know? Um, right. uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I think even with the eclipse, it's like, you know, I thought about it, you know, six months ahead of time. I went there a month ahead of time to kind of plan it out. And then when the eclipse happened, we went there two days ahead of time to kind of scout it and set up the lines and all this stuff. So, and then when the shot kind of came about, I didn't even really know what the shot was. It was just like, I think this will be cool. You, you know how those things go. Yeah. It's always hard. You yeah. Know. I know as an interviewer, I've had recordings, full-on interviews of people. And I'm thinking, you know, this is fantastic. This is going along. And then the interview wraps up. And I look at my recorder and I realize it was never recording in the first place. I'm sure this is really reassuring for you to that hear. That is so heavy. <laughs> no way. When, uh, when's the worst time in your case when you've had batteries die on you or files corrupt or a roll of oh film, you lose it that's or it gets happened, destroyed? That's happened so many times. <laughs> I, had, I had about $30,000 worth of gear get soaked in Chile oh. um, when a boat captain drove us into a wave. And it was the, one of the most heinous experiences of my life. I was super young and... <laughs> And uh, I was, you know, beginning of my career, I thought my whole career was over. Right. I thought my whole entire career was over because that was everything I had, everything I owned at that time. Was, was it insured um, or, or was there? It wasn't, it was yeah. insured and I was able to collect on that insurance, but I didn't quite, you know, it's like, you know, you know, always question it, you know, you don't quite sure. understand or know right. if that, um, if it's all going to work out and, you know, if you're going to be struggling. So luckily, but the thing is after that experience, I wasn't insurable for years. Um, so that was stressful. You know, it was a really gnarly and stressful thing. And, um, I, I, you know, I was really lucky to, uh, to be able to kind of get through that, you know? Yeah. So what were you there for in the first place? What was the plan and, uh, and how did that plan change? Uh, the plan, well, I mean, the plan was to go out and shoot this outer reef, right? Okay. Um, in the really far south of Chile and we got out there and the waves were incredible and the, it was offshore and it was everything we kind of dreamed about uh-huh. and ultimately yeah like halfway through the session the boat captain who was drunk from the night before was kind of dozing off at the wheel of this small panga boat and uh and and he kind of you know he had had to turn kept keep the boat kind of turned in a certain direction so that if and or when a big wave came we could get out of the situation quickly Right. Uh, that didn't happen. And basically the wave just launched over the bow and I was sitting there with all my gear. And just, <laughs> oh. I was like pouring salt water out of my camera. So as you can imagine, <laughs> that's exactly how the moment didn't come to life. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. What uh, what have you learned from from seeing the world? You know, the people that you've met, the places that you've been able to go. What has that shown you about the world that we live in? Huh. It's kind of a big, broad life question. <laughs> um I guess one thing I've realized is that um, in order for you to make someone care about anything, you have to give them the opportunity to experience it. You know, mm. as much as people we want to, you know, talk and gripe and moan about, you know, glaciers thinning out and stuff, you're never going to change people's perspective in rural Africa or China if, if you just, if, if they never have the ability to experience something, you know, that's one of the hardest things that we, what we do is we, we protect and preserve what we care about. And so how do you make them care about that stuff? Well, I hope that, I hope that photography in many ways can be a tool to allow people to experience something and, and even more so not just photography, but actually having them go in some capacity 
and actually getting them closer to that experience. And, um, and that's a really challenging thing. I don't think that it's always going to be super straightforward. I don't think it's always going to be easy. And in fact, I don't think it's always going to work. But I think that for me, I want, you know, I, I've realized this from people and from traveling and, and just from being out in the world is like, I can have the most incredible, humbling, life-changing experience. And I could feel like a different person and go back and want to share that with the world. But if, if they never have that too, then right. it's not necessarily going to set in. So how do we get closer to allowing others to experience those things. Right. And um, I guess that's what I've always wanted to do is I've wanted to make these places feel accessible and approachable and not, you know, cause I know that it was, it's hard to get there and it's hard to make a career that allows me to go to those places. Um, I know because, you know, it, life was not always the easy path, you know, for me to, to do those things. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I just, I guess that's the thing I've learned the most. Yeah. You know, there's a, a bit of a paradox there where you photograph a place and share it with the world, and then that leads to more and more people naturally wanting to go to that place, and then that place maybe changes in time by more and more people going there and, and no longer being that remote spot or that secret spot or whatever it was. Has your attitude toward that changed in time, or, or what is your attitude in general towards that? You know, there's always the conversation of are we loving these places to death? And I absolutely go back and forth with that. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a challenging one. I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way, you know, like you you love these places, you want to share them, you want everyone to experience them, but then you go there and it's crowded and you're grumpy. Well, it's kind of hard because it's like, why did we pick up a camera in the first place mm. to create passion in ourselves and others, you know, and at the same time that we want to complain about these parks being busy or this place being that, we also want to protect these places. And the best way to protect them is to get people to experience them, I think, in many ways. You know, you're seeing the byproduct of places where, you know, they aren't being protected anymore because nobody knew and nobody raised their voice about them. So mm-hmm. it's a hard it's a hard thing. I see both sides and I, I struggle with both. I feel like when it comes to places that are, highly visited and highly touristed and it's obvious where it is. I, I tend to, you know, share where those locations are, but right. when it's somewhere special that, you know, I don't ever aim to keep anywhere a secret, but I also want people to have the joy of finding it themselves. That's what makes it so fun. You know, that last bit sticks with me too. this question of, are we loving certain places to death? And you just hope that's not the case. The next guest I want to go back to is Stefan Orth, episode 52. Stefan is a travel writer from Hamburg, Germany. He used to write for Der Spiegel, and he's the author of the bestseller Couchsurfing in Iran. He gave himself a rule when traveling. He said, say yes to any and all opportunities, which makes for an interesting way of seeing a place. He also wanted to see the country by staying with the people who live there, and that's part of a broader philosophy of travel for him. I'll open it up with that bit. I, I had a very interesting talk to a kind of famous Russian traveler once uh, who said that uh, you should think about how, how much percent of your travels you spend with people who are paid to be friendly to you, like hmm. who are working in the tourism industry in some way and they are just paid to to do what they do for you. And if you 
think about that and try to reduce this number, it's probably a, a pretty good idea to get a more authentic trip. <laughs> I love that. So I've never been couch surfing before myself, but I have done the equivalent. I've used warm showers before. I think you're familiar with warm showers as yeah. well. So I know what it's like to be hosted by somebody and somebody who you don't necessarily know beforehand. What is your best couch surfing story from your time in Iran? Oh, that's actually really hard to say because there were uh, so many interesting uh, hosts. They were very diverse, very different people. Maybe one guy, it's pretty special. He was the oldest host I had. He was uh, old, 54, I think. Mm -hmm. And a really outgoing guy in the north of Iran, and uh, he he took me to lots of places. He he made me feel like his son. Took me to a wedding the second day I was there, and uh, but also kind of treated me like a social experiment the whole time. <laughs> like he was uh, sending me anywhere. Like to, I had to talk to people, and like he said, okay, talk to this woman, ask her a question, and he would stand behind and. And watch the situation and just see how people react to me to this weird foreigner so this was a quite <laughs> interesting setup the whole time uh, but and it was definitely not a relaxing kind of holiday but uh, it, we've become great friends and it's it was a very uh, nice guy but this is just one of them like the hospitality of Iranian people is really uh, I haven't seen something like that in, in other places in the world I have to say. So what are the lengths that people are going to to make you comfortable? What kind of hospitality are you seeing? Well, well, you can always, you, you just feel like an honorary guest the whole time. Like, uh, for example, I had one couch surfer. Uh, she just, she had two other guests and she met me also. And uh, she, she took a day off from work. Well, she didn't take a day off. She actually uh, said she was sick. <laughs> at work just to spend the whole day with and show us the, the desert which was near the city it was the Kaluts desert region near Kerman in this case a really amazing area and uh, yeah so she told her boss she's sick just to be able to show it to us and herself she had seen it like 20 times before it was not, nothing special to, uh, to her so it was just uh, like her hospitality her idea to show this to us there's a, a fear involved in going to Iran as a foreigner and dealing with customs, I think, especially perhaps as a journalist, somebody who, you know, they ask you what your occupation is, you're trying to come up with reasons why not to say what you are. So you went with website editor instead. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that, what you faced in going there and the environment that you sensed and, and felt and had to deal with. Yeah, I, I would say actually as a regular tourist, you don't have too much to fear in Iran. It's a very safe country and you, you don't get a lot of trouble with the authorities if you don't do anything illegal. Uh, but of course, being a journalist is a kind of issue that... Uh, scared me a lot of times for example i had to extend my visa twice when i was there uh, and uh, go to some 
offices for that and uh, talk to the people and tell them why I'm traveling there. And it would be very easy to Google my name and find out after two minutes that I work as a journalist and I was working for Der Spiegel, uh, mm-hmm. the website of Der Spiegel which is uh, pretty well known as a quite critical kind of uh, media also. So this was always very scary. And I was surprised that nobody found out during the time I was uh, there that I was a journalist. Later on, actually, when the book was published, there were some very critical articles on on blogs in Iran, also in Farsi language, Mm -hmm. uh, who... uh, who, who showed that they were not, uh, they saw this as a kind of scandal book, actually. So what was the plan for you as far as how long you'd stay in each place and where you'd go when you had it in mind? I mean, you loved Iran the first time around and you decided to go back again. Well, I, I just knew I can stay for three weeks with the visa back then. And I was hoping I can extend it. And in the end, it turned out to be two months that was possible. So I didn't really have, had, I hadn't booked my flight back when I arrived. And I just wanted to like see as much of the country as possible, like do a big tour, see many different areas and uh, spend a lot of time with the people follow the ideas of the local people so my kind of plan was to always stick to the things that my hosts would be planning never say no to any idea which can kind of uh, stupid in some situations probably but (laughs) it also leads to the most interesting adventures i guess yeah how did that go for you to say yes to the invitations that came your way yeah, that went really great because, uh, as I said, I was I went to a wedding there. I went to a, a, sec- a secret meeting of the local sadomasochistic scene of Tehran, <laughs> which was uh, quite interesting. I mean, it was just a meeting in the park where people talk about uh, what they are, what they do, talk, give give each other some kind of advice and stuff. But still, it was a very illegal thing and. I, I met a guy who who's making 100 liters of wine, uh, 1,000 liters of wine every year, which is also completely illegal, of course. Right. Uh, so uh, I got into a lot of situations uh, where I was surprised what kind of things happen secretly as soon as the door is closed, as soon as nobody's watching. People have much more freedoms than you would expect from just seeing the the public picture of Iran. Stefan was a really interesting guy to talk to, a great writer too. His next book is called Behind Putin's Curtain. It's a story of couch surfing through Russia. Some travel stories are about things we can all emulate or try out for ourselves. This next one is not one of those stories, but it is a story well told. Hillary Nelson, episode 43. Hillary is the first woman to climb two 8,000-meter peaks in 24 hours. One of them was Mount Everest. Last year, she was named National Geographic Adventure of the Year. Now, sometimes things go wrong in adventure. This is one of those stories. Here's Hillary Nelson. You're coming back from Everest, and you start talking with Mark Jenkins about what you want to do next. Yeah. Uh, the idea comes up. You decide it's going to be this super remote peak in Myanmar, uh, Hakakabo Razi. How does that come up? 
Well, that actually originally started, Mark and I walked into Everest Base Camp together. The rest of our team had, had gone in earlier and we came, you know, a little like a week or 10 days later. Mm-hmm. And so we had 10 days just walking in together and Mark's an incredibly well-traveled writer and adventurer. And I had first heard of Hakakabo Razi in the early 2000s, so maybe 2001 or 2002, and had tried for years to get North Face to help fund us to go there, but it was really politically difficult and expensive Mm. and many other reasons. And then talking to Mark, he had actually been there in like the late 80s and had tried to get into the, the Himalaya actually that dropped down into Burma, Mm -hmm. Myanmar, and that's Hakakabo Razi. And he knew of the peak and had actually tried to go there and climb it. And I was just fascinated and so wanted to go. And the politics were changing uh, in that Westerners were far from getting a carte blanche to travel there, but it was opening up and you could travel there. And uh, so after we went through the whole Everest thing and it was so crowded and every step of the way was laid out for us, we both were just like I, I just really wanted to go back to the remote corners of the globe and have an adventure, and Hakakawarazi was all of that and more. How do you how do you go about planning that and and picking the team for that, getting everything in motion? I mean, this is a a mountain that's remote enough that it's not necessarily well mapped out. How you're going to get up there? You're having to figure things out. What's the process like for that? Right. I mean, at the time, that, so basically we came home from Everest and National Geographic came into the picture again. We applied for an explorer's grant and received the grant. And it still took almost two years before we were able to actually implement the expedition. It just took so long. And I was responsible for most all of the logistical planning. So, yeah. you know, all the overland travel, all the permits um, and all of that was really rather complicated and time consuming. So um, I did, you know, most of it from home, but even just finding maps, there were really, we had one or two pictures of the peak from a Japanese guy that had climbed there in the mid nineties, but we weren't even sure that they were photos of the actual mountain. Mm. So it was, you know, incredibly difficult to plan and all of the logistics were so loose and just yeah just uh we had to be really ready for things to not quite go as we expected right uh, and um <laughs> and they didn't and of they course. didn't yeah. yeah they definitely didn't Uh, A lot of things happened, I mean, just before even getting to base camp. Uh, That was a long enough expedition in itself just to get there. Yeah. Uh, What what were the most memorable bits of that, the things that you look back now and and shake your head at or just, you know, can't help but laugh at? Well, we thought that it would be a really great idea to sort of craft this as an old-fashioned expedition, which meant we went overland all the way from the, the main city, Yangon, which is way in the south of Myanmar, and we traveled some 1,000 miles before we even got to where we started walking. So then we had to walk. Um, we took these little, oh, my God, these little mopeds through the jungle, which was terrifying. <laughs> and then we had to walk. What if, The mopeds were 80 miles, and it took us four days to go 80 miles on these bikes. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and then and then we had to walk 150 miles to get to base camp. So it was a month of overland travel before we even got to the mountain. And there were on numerous amounts of adventures. Um, the death train, which I highly recommend anyone going to Burma to avoid, was just this 18-hour, like, bumpy, horrible, spider-infested train. Oh, geez. It's a little tricky. Um, but a couple of things that we did experience that were pretty incredible was taking the the ferry from Bagan to Mandalay on the Irrawaddy River, and that was incredible. Mm-hmm. And then all the temples in Bagan and, and just the, the culture and the people were so unique, and, and you would expect it to be unique because it's been so isolated for so many decades, but you know, you don't you, you don't know what unique is until you're in it. And it was, yeah, the people were beautiful and so helpful and just, I don't know, just a, an incredible place. I'm, I'm guessing that the official name of the death train, it probably has a different <laughs> name when you're doing the bookings. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you look pretty, if you look a little bit on the, you know, a little get dive deeper beyond booking your tickets right. on the internet, it's, it's called the death train because the rails are so old and so warped that the train bounces intensely enough to derail it like more often than not and usually that results in somebody dying which fortunately um it didn't derail while we were on it but Mm -hmm. uh, it was shocking that it didn't derail any number of things can go wrong when you're on an expedition yes how do you prepare for the worst or or the inevitable in some senses i think it takes um, a certain mindset not to say that all the things that went wrong on this trip weren't incredibly frustrating. I mean, I almost you know, quit my life of expedition athlete after that expedition. And that was mm. because of human dynamics, but it was also just because of so much going wrong or so many things going in ways outside of our expectations. It was just hard to absorb it and hard to see the, the, bright side of the situation Mm -hmm. but again it was all of our choices to be there and you know now two years you know gosh it's been almost four years flash forward I look back on it as an amazing adventure and and that is when everything goes wrong but you do you just you have to have a mindset where you go in with the expectation that things are going to go as you planned right but the flexibility and the relaxed if that's it's not even a word, but um, to to adapt right. and change and laugh at things. Oh my God, laughter is very, very important. <laughs> that's just one story. Hillary has got a ton more and she talks about her Everest climb on the podcast. It is well worth a listen. The last one I'll leave you with today is Spencer Conway, episode 39. Spencer was 41 years old when he quit his job as an English teacher and told himself he was going to see the world by motorcycle. He's logged over 100,000 kilometers so far, and I like this conversation because it's about travel to unfamiliar places and sometimes about getting past the fear of the unknown, although I don't think Spencer has much of that fear these days. He also just happens to be a fantastic storyteller. We open by talking about his trips, circumnavigating both Africa and South America by motorbike. 
tell me about some of the memorable problems that you faced uh, first in Africa and, and then in South America. Sure. Okay, well, in Africa, you can't really beat this one. I got shot in Africa. Um, I was on the border with uh, Kenya and Somalia, and uh, it's, there's a, an area, it's about 500 kilometers, there's pretty much nothing, dirt road, and I'm sure you've heard of the Somali pirates that are kidnapping ships and things like that. Sure, yeah. This is where they train these guys, on this border with Kenya. And I was riding along and I just waved to these three guys on a hill and they just turned around and started shooting uh, an AK-47. It took off the back tire, got a bullet hole through the swing arm, the brake caliper exploded, went through my arm, came out the other side, fell off, broke three ribs, jumped back on the bike, but I had no tire. It was gone. I just mm -hmm. had to rim. So I just rode off expecting to be shot in the back. Uh, the police later told me that they must have run out of bullets because guns are like $100, which is super cheap, but bullets are like $20 each. And they said they wouldn't have shot you and got you and then not shot you afterwards. So I rode off expecting to be shot. I wasn't. I went into the bush, slept there in the rain 15 hours. Well, I didn't sleep. And then I walked about 30 kilometers and I found a Catholic mission with a German priest there. And uh, he helped me out, got me to hospital. And then uh, a few weeks later, I went back and got the bike. So, yeah, that was... Uh, Memorable in a negative way. Mm -hmm. um, South America, absolutely fantastic. Had a crash uh, in the salt flats. I don't know, do you, have you heard of the Salado Uni salt flats? Yeah, in Bolivia. It's a super cool place. And I think what people don't realize is 100 times the size of Bonneville. So it is a seriously big place. It is 12,000 square kilometers. And if you just imagine like a circle with a, a road bisecting east to west and north to south, a track, that's pretty much what they got. But I wanted to go off track and film so that you could get just nobody. And it's never happened to me before. I don't know what went on, but the tire didn't just burst. It came off the rim. I don't know to this day. But uh, I was weaving at 80. I had the camera woman on the back, who's also my girl. And uh, I, was think I thought I was really cool. I was holding this, controlling it, sliding. And I just get this tap on the back of the helmet as I'm trying to control it. And she says... Are you ever going to stop? I was like, no, Jesus Christ. But anyway, we came, we came off. It wasn't too serious, but uh, the tire was, was finished. So I tried to fix it with the inflator, but my inflator failed. So we left all the equipment, the cameras, the tents, the sleeping bags, the panniers, everything. And we rode out at five kilometers an hour on the rim. And we got to an island and uh, we met these two guys. They kept us for the night. And to give you some idea of how big this place is, we had three guides looking for our equipment for three days and they only found it on the third day because it wasn't on the designated route. But why it was so great was when we saw it in the distance, it was me and these three truck drivers squashed into this cab and they're like, that's your stuff, that's your stuff. And they were just jumping in the air, hugging me and they didn't ask for any money, nothing. Out of the kindness of their hearts, they took three days of their life and it was like we'd won the lottery or something. It was a wonderful feeling. Uh, and I had that all the way along. It's people. I mean, the landscapes, the riding, we all love it. That's why we ride motorbikes. But mm -hmm. it's the people that really do make the difference. I mean, Venezuela is probably my favorite country in South America. But it is in such a terrible state. Um, there's no money there. If you do get hold of money, you need a suitcase about this big to... Well, you can't see what I'm doing because it's radio. But a massive suitcase full of money for a loaf of bread. So consequently, there's no money there. Um, they're having problems with the government. But 
the people are just superb. And, you know, in the face of adversity, people seem to stick together on occasions. So that was a really memorable one. And it's very, very difficult to get into Venezuela. I did manage it. But when I tried to get out on the other side with Colombia, they wouldn't allow me because it's for the last three years, it's only been foot passengers. So I had this problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a little thing. Um, I needed a tire. So I said to them, can I go to Colombia for one hour? So they said, yeah, no problem. So I went to Colombia, walked, got into Colombia, got myself a tire because they don't have any in Venezuela. And when I came to bring it back, they said, no, you're not allowed a tire here. And I thought, oh, God, I've spent $80. This is bloody ridiculous. Um, And they sent me back. And when I went back, there was a one-legged guy. And he said to me, hey, I can smuggle that through for you. No problem. I can go under the bridge, across a river, through the jungle. I'll come out the other side. If you give me one dollar, I'll do that for you. So it happened. It was it was bloody hilarious. He, this guy hopped through the river, hopped through the jungle, came out the other side holding my tire in the air, mm-hmm. saying, I've got mm-hmm. it, I've got it, and giving the fingers up to the customs officers because he was already in another country. So that was a good little anecdote. But I was, uh, I was 200 kilometers from my destination because I'd gone all the way around South America, every country, mm-hmm. and I was coming mm-hmm. back into Colombia. I couldn't do it. After three weeks, they just said, no, you're not allowed to take the bike. So I think I took the world's biggest detour. I did 12,000 more kilometers. I had to go all the way back through Venezuela, all the way through the Amazon, into Ecuador, into Peru, and back to Colombia. So instead of taking eight months, it was one year and four months. You have a great story of going to the border. I believe it was in Congo and crossing through the jungle there. Could you tell me that one? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a border called Matadi, which everybody go, all bikers and overlanders pick that coastal route. But I thought I'd go through the center. And they did have a border, but my Michelin map uh, for Africa, which was the only map I had, was 1997, I think. And this Makela de Zombo border, I wasn't sure if it existed. So I got onto this road and the road disappeared. And it was, just became a track. And I had a machete, so I started cutting my way through. I have a compass. This is how I travel as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Because you're going north or south, that's it really. Mm-hmm. And um, it, the track just became nothing. So it took me a whole day to do 10 kilometers. So I'd hack through, push the bike, hack through, push the bike. But then I turned up at this hut, and there was this dude there. And I just walked out the jungle. Um, I left the bike because there was a particularly steep bit up to his, his uh, hut. And he just freaked out, you know, six foot four white guy covered in mud and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, his uh, his border stamp was completely dried out. So he couldn't sign. He couldn't stamp my passport. And he was like, no worries. What I can do is I'll I'll write this. I'm not joking. He got my passport and he wrote in pen. Spencer Conway can pass through the border legally. I was like, man, (laughs) this is not going to work. And uh, yeah, it's, it, I went and I, I managed to get through. And he said that it was the first time in four years that he'd seen someone come through that route. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah, I found that amazing. I want to go back to something that you spoke of a little bit before, uh, mentioning how the people in Venezuela, uh, well, in, in your experience in Venezuela, was among your favorites. I think there is probably uh, a bit of fear that people have anytime they go to a country where the the customs are not familiar to them or the language is a different one. 
uh, they don't know what to expect and they might feel as though they don't know what they're getting themselves into. What has your experience been uh, meeting people from around the world, different countries, different cultures, different customs, the things that you've learned from, from being in places that people don't go to? Sure, that's a really good question, actually. You know what? I, I believe that you shouldn't read foreign office websites. You shouldn't read the English websites because they will tell you, you won't go anywhere. They, they warn you about every country. No, you can't go there. You can't go there. Now, when I was going to Venezuela, I knew it was going to be really difficult to get in. It had just been voted the world's most dangerous country. Now, honestly, honestly, Martin, when I go in there, you, I arrived at the first village and they said to me, Spencer, Spencer, you are safe here. This place is fantastic. But the next village is very dangerous. They'll kill you. Then I went to the next village and they said the same thing about the next. They're like, yeah, we're fine here. But if you go to the next place and it was all the way through. And I'm not saying they don't have problems, but it's like anything. Sorry, it's an old cliche. You can walk out of the out on the road here in London, and get hit by a bus and that's the end of you. So, you know, be polite, uh, look for the positives, uh, respect people's customs. And what I learned the most of all, everybody's really cool. You know, uh, the, especially the, the bike is always a really great um, talking point because it's got, well, now it's got 121 flags on it. Um, so it looks really colorful. So people just see it and you've immediately broken the ice. They're like, wow, where are you going? This is crazy. So the first conversation is really easy. And then you just keep it going from there. You get invited to stay at people's houses. And I felt bad sometimes. I turned down a lot of invites because I wanted to make a bit more progress or for whatever reason. But uh, generally speaking, human beings are great. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening and I hope you liked it. Each one of those conversations I think of now when I do any of my own travel. Maybe not as much Hillary's because I'm not climbing mountains, but I will make a note to avoid the death train when I can. If you enjoy the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a story untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.